The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton, you're with us for the next 30 minutes of Frank Open Honest Conversation about gambling addiction addicts like myself. And, of course, joining me as always, Dan Trelaro from Epic Risk Management. Danny, uh, a gambler in recovery for more than a decade now. And, uh, Danny, it was good having you here. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Craig. Uh, just coming back from Georgia, where we spent some time with uh, another college, another university here, college kids, uh, Mercer University. Had a great time down here down in Macon for the last um, early part of the week. Well, that's awesome, and uh look forward to hearing more about that story on your voyage. And I actually just did the same thing uh, in Galloway Township down in Jersey at Rowan talking to young kids, uh, future broadcasters also about gambling. So uh, we're, 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 we're trying to get it done from coast to coast, no doubt about it. And also joining us this morning, the founder and CEO of Conbridge Treatment, Dan Umfleet. We've talked to the guys at Conbridge in the past. Uh, Mark Lefkowitz, who's a big part of my recovery, is still with uh, the folks at Conbridge, and they're a telehealth company that makes it very easy for addicts to get uh, the help and access to therapists and uh, professionals uh, to help them through uh, the myriad of issues that uh, come along with addiction. Dan, a pleasure to have you here again this morning. How are you? I'm good, Craig. Thanks. Dan, nice to uh, talk with you again. Yeah, likewise, Dan. It's good seeing you recently, too. Let me start off, obviously, uh, as uh, telehealth companies have also grown uh, dramatically uh, through COVID and now beyond, I know one of your focuses is having professionals that are available to uh, gambling addicts, compulsive gamblers that you know, don't know another place to go or another way to go get help. Over the course of the last year, because I think it's been about a year since we talked to Mark and you guys, maybe even longer than that, give me a sense of percentage-wise or just an overall feeling from you guys as to how many people are now reaching out in comparison to maybe even a year or two ago with uh, gambling-related issues. The growth has been really extreme compared to where we were when we talked, and I think it was actually about two years ago now, the last time that we talked, Craig. Um, So we're seeing anywhere between 30 and 50 intakes a week, Um, and the census continues to grow in terms of the amount of individuals that we're treating Um, at any given time. We're probably seeing between 100 and 125 gamblers that are reaching out for one issue related to their gambling problems or the other. Um, And we have now expanded into 42 states plus Ontario and Puerto Rico. And we are getting requests from all over the world to uh, link folks up with uh, therapists out of our network so, so let me ask you about uh, that because there's an aspect to that that dan and i've talked a lot so you know you know let's rewind the clock for a minute you know when i got in trouble and had to come to terms with the fact that i was a compulsive gambler at the time and this is going back now to the fall and winter 2017 into 2018 uh, to my knowledge uh from a bricks and mortar standpoint there were only three legitimate uh gambling addiction centers in the country, there was one in Minnesota. There's the one I went to, of course, in Arizona called Algamas. And there was one down south. And to my knowledge, although they're obviously very valued professionals that may not have been affiliated with those three centers, you know, there wasn't a lot of 
of access for guys like me and Dan, gamblers like us, to reach out the way you would if you had other mental health issues or other addictive uh, personality issues. And I'm wondering for you, has it been easier to find and locate professionals that have been educated in how to speak to and help specifically gambling addicts, or has that never been a problem for you guys and companies like yours? Uh, that's a great question. The bottom line, we have to create them, right? And I think that's that's part of the mission that we undertake ourselves is an understanding that there are a lot of therapists out there that are curious about what seeing someone with gambling problems is meant to, to be like, like what does recovery look like for an individual with these particular types of issues? And what we end up doing is we'll end up recruiting folks who are interested in the subject and then putting them through a battery of trainings and getting them basically up to ICGC level two over time. So there's just not a lot in terms of in the pool of therapists across the country that understand this particular ailment and are in sort of ready position to, um, you know, get to work when when the masses start to present, if that makes sense. And I get it completely because it's one of my it's one of my big concerns and one of my big, uh, you know, kind of soapbox issues that Dan and I talk about a lot, not on your end, but on the state's end, like these states are now bringing in you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year, and they mark very little of it towards, uh, you know, recovery and towards addiction uh, care, preventative care for young adults that might find themselves in harm's way because they just weren't prepared for the reality of becoming compulsive gamblers. And I sure wish there was a way to use some of that money to create more awareness for young people who want to become therapists to get into specifically therapy around gambling addiction, which is my own little bugaboo, so I, I, won't, I won't put you on the spot anymore about it. For you guys, you know, one of my big concerns and the audience that I talk to the most and Dan talks to the most are young adults, specifically for Dan, college campuses, of course, kids in their late teens, early 20s that we know are gambling and exposed to gambling. And I'm kind of doing the same thing both because of the audience I've built up a rapport with on the radio and TV and my ability to talk to thus far, you know, East Coast campuses and kids. But what is the fastest growing segment of the population that is presenting with issues around gambling uh, in regards to the folks that you're currently seeing? We see a lot of, of folks that are into fantasy and jumping into sports betting, right? Mm -hmm. So I think specifically around that age category, that seems to be um, a hot button, a hot button topic right there is um, they've spent a lot of time, you know, with their friends in the past doing fantasy. Um, that pop through because their parents push them towards our way to talk to them where they're basically sort of stealing their parents' identities and jumping online and using parents' proof of ID and parents' credit cards to set up accounts. And then the parents get blindsided when they get the bills because they're gambling on credit cards, these types of things. Um, so for that younger group of individuals that we are seeing come through our pipeline, um, those are the common issues that crop up when you're talking to them about sort of where they are and thinking about their relationship with gambling and when you look at the origins of the behaviors on how they got there in the first place. You know, um, so 
there's some, yeah, I think those are pretty, pretty big. We're also seeing in the, in the little bit of the older category, we're seeing a fair amount of veterans reaching out. Um, I think it's the time of year. I also think with everything you've got kind of going on globally right now in terms of warfare in different regions, um, it's, I think, possibly acting as a trigger. And so we're getting more veterans reaching out for care than we've ever had in the past. Um, so just some interesting things to look out for. But by and large, like, we've, we've kind of gone through a couple of waves of monitoring what the general split is of male to female. Um, for a long time, we were about 75% male, 25% female. Um, we moved closer to 50-50. And then of recent, we're back to about 65-35, male being the dominant population. Um, so it is sort of ebbing and flowing and moving around, uh, which is interesting. Um, and it's, it's just continuing to move in a direction where there's more demand for services like what we're providing, which is creating a whole lot of interesting things for the future to consider when you're talking about public health in this population. Yeah, my concern on this, and Dan Schlauer, you could jump in on this as well. You know, you're really on the front lines from a, a college yeah. standpoint. My concern would be the same concern I originally had with uh, 1-800-GAMBLER. Great service, great thing to have, uh, which is now the nationwide accepted uh, you know, toll-free number for everybody to call uh, to talk to someone who can then steer them in the right direction to get help. And I, I want to be clear, this is not a knock. The people that are do, you know, manning those phones are doing God's work, much like I believe you are, Dan. My concern is I always thought 1-800-GAMBLER is great in the moment. I call the number. I get a very caring person on the other end. They steer me in the right direction. And then that person doesn't really have the ability to follow up on my behalf because I'm an anonymous caller to them. And I wonder for you guys, and Dan, as you talk to young adults, maybe you want to come in here first, my concern, and again, I want to be clear, not a knock at all. I'm just questioning how you get somebody who might reach out to you in a panic. Oh, my God, I can't pay my credit card bill. I owe my roommate money. I'm in a lot of trouble. I lost more money than I can afford. Let me quickly pick up the phone. I heard about Conbridge. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to talk to a counselor one time on a Zoom call. It's going to be great. That, that counselor is available to me whenever I need them to be available to me. But I just don't follow up and call again because my roommate paid off my bill. I'm okay. And I may or may not gamble ever again. But, you know, I'm not going to come back for a second call to get help. How do we make sure that if they're not going to reach out a second time or a third time, that we're able to reach out to them to see how they're doing? Wow. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that one because that, that, that's, I think that's the dilemma that you know, both Dan Umfleet, myself, as well as the rest of the folks in the treatment community, peer support specialists, preventionists, that's the thing we face, right? You want to keep that person on the line. You want to be there to help them. And what we know, Craig, and you and I know this, and we, it's just like if I don't want the help, I don't care if somebody else wants to follow up with me or not. I'm not going to answer that phone. And I'm going to, when I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, that's when I'm going to look for help again. And that's the nature of this disease is that it's a process addiction. And gambling tells us that every so often we'll win. And until you realize that winning is not your way out of this problem, it's actually stopping and then dealing with the problem, you're going to continue to ebb and flow. And right now, because it's state by state, there's no national, there's a national helpline, but there's no national policy. You know, you have to go to different states to get different sets of rules. It's hard to get permission to follow up with someone. We tried it in New Jersey when I was the assistant director. 
We actually had people that say, yeah, I don't mind if you follow up with me in three months' time or six months' time. And we did 42 people in one of the years. We had 42 people say, yeah, we don't mind if you follow up with us. Three of them answered the phone. The other 39 would either not return the calls right. or change their number or it was disconnected. So it makes it a real big challenge, to your point on that. And, and, and Dan, before, before I turn over to you on that topic, I also want to mention something. You highlighted fantasy sports. Being down in Georgia here, you know, Georgia's pending legislation to legalize sports wagering probably in 2024. A lot of the college kids, it's all about DFS, you know, the, the fantasy sports operators, as well as the ones that kind of toe the line, you know, the prize picks, the draft kings, DFS. But that's all they talk about is the DFS. So we see it firsthand on college campuses. Um, so it really echoes the point you made about DFS being a huge gateway to potential sports betting as well. Absolutely. Um yeah, this is a, it's a layered answer to a complex question, right? So, um, first thing we do, for example, everyone who answers the phone is a person with lived experience or a trained counselor, one way or the other, which is not dissimilar to what happens when someone calls 1-800-GAMBLER. Um, and so the de-escalation on the crisis situation is something that we're comfortable with. Everyone's trauma trained, crisis trained. Um, and then once you get beyond that initial call, if they're comfortable and they're ready to engage, then we use an app-based system where once the person comes in, sets up a profile, gets their uh, schedule set, um, we start to engage with them a little bit more frequently. And I, I mean, it's, it's easier for us to drop a newsletter in their inbox once they're in our environment, it's easier for us to drop them a text message to remind them and just check in on them how they're doing. Like once they're in the environment, it's a lot easier for follow up when they've actually sort of come in through the technology platform to start communicating with them. Um, so it's kind of a it's kind of interesting because you're making me think of something that I hadn't previously spent a whole lot of time talking about. But I mean, once we get someone in the system. We see them stick around for anywhere between six to eight weeks, typically, right? And like, you know, when a telehealth program, you have to understand where to draw the line, right? right. Like there are situations where, you know, the person is, the, the acuity level is way too high for us to handle. And then it becomes us offering triage support while we're trying to find an inpatient facility for the person to get uh, accepted into in a timely fashion, right? So our role changes. It's, it's not trying to deliver a care plan on an individual that is way too high acuity for us to handle, it is basically a band-aid until we can get you safely delivered where you need to go, if that makes sense. It's, a, it's slightly different once, once they're actually in the care environment and they say, yes, we want, you know, I or we or whoever's involved at this stage um, wants to continue talking, then, you know, like our systems are kind of set up to continuously communicate with them and check in on them, which right. I think is important. So you get you get sort of longer engagement that way. And uh, one of the things that we leave them with right out of the gates in that first session is we do a really in-depth mental health assessment for the person. Uh, I think everybody that we've seen come through the pipeline, you know, in reality, everybody's dealing with a, a few different things when they present with this problem, right? Whether it be really deep depression, whether it be post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it be bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or anything, right? 
Um, what we do is we do an extremely comprehensive exam with the individual that looks for about 80 different mental health diseases. And it gives them a really good baseline of everything that's going on with them. So it, it kind of like lets them sort of sit back, think about what they're seeing after they go through the process openly and honestly and review it with a therapist. And then we can start crafting a care plan on what to work on while we're working in parallel on the gambling problem. If that got it. Sense. Well, right? listen, so, I got to take a break, but I want to, I appreciate uh, what you guys do. Uh, always good having you on. Please send my best to Mark. And uh, Kind Bridge is out there for people that want to stay at home or at office and not have to leave the comforts of their home or office to experience uh, the best in uh, therapeutic care for not just gambling, but obviously for a, rather, uh, a lot of other mental health issues as well. Dan Umfleet, always appreciate your time. If I can ever return the favor, just give me a shout. And thank you so much for being on the front lines of helping people like me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Craig and Dan. Thanks, Dan. This is Hello, My Name is Craig. We'll continue on right after this. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Uh, Dan Trelau, Epic Risk Management, joins us as always. And appreciate Dan Umfleet coming on, of course, from uh, Conbridge and their telehealth uh, center. Dan, I had an interesting conversation with a friend at dinner the other night who has a teenage son still in high school. And that teenage son is now discovered and gotten into uh, sports wagering. And my friend, knowing my history, asked me at dinner if I thought it was a good idea or a bad idea if they allowed their son to wager, but knowingly using their credit card so that they could kind of be on top of what he was doing. And the question was, it's like that old school thing. You know, do you want to be the house that all the kids come to as an adult so you can monitor what they're doing, understanding that they're going to drink underage or, you know, smoke weed underage, but because you're the parent, you can keep everything in check. And I thought it was an interesting question that they allow their son to wager using their credit card. They monitor, obviously, his wins and his losses. And when he loses, they have a deal with him that he has to pay them out of the money he makes at his job. And yep. uh, I, it's funny because there's a part of me that says, I don't want to put my head in the sand. And if I know my kid's going to find a way to gamble anyway, <laughs> and I might be wrong about that, then I'd rather he do it and I have my eyes wide open to it and I can be on top of it because he's not doing it secretly. The other part of me as a guy that did gamble quite secretly for a long time as an adult, would think once I've exposed my kid and blessed him doing it, there's still the possibility that as much as I can monitor what he does on the websites, that now he's going to be doing it in a manner that I can't monitor it. And I wonder what advice you would give that friend of mine who has a teenage kid. Man, you know, that's, that's the age-old question because we've heard that about drinking for years, right. too. Like, you know, do I, do I, you know, like you said, do I let the kids come over to the house and I'll monitor their consumption of alcohol so they normalize it so by the time they go to college, they're not drinking for the first time, right? And, you know, that's an age-old question. But here's, I think, what some of the science tends to say. And even some of our guests, Craig, you know, for myself included, I normalized gambling at an early age because I saw the positive and it was a fun time. And, you know, age of onset matters so much when you think through the lens of the potential for developing harm or a harmful relationship with something. 
you know, I would say that the, the rules and the laws are in place for one reason, right? A certain age, which some of us will even argue that the brain's still developing. They should actually be even later than that, but they're not. So, you know, 21 for sports betting. And by the um, way, there, there are some states that now allow you to do it at 18. Yeah, Tennessee, right? right. Tennessee, I mean, Kentucky, rather, is one of those states that, that did allow for 18. And that's being met with a lot of blowback. And even some of the operators are still keeping the 21 minimum, even though the state says you can go to 18. Some of our operators are keeping it at 21 because they're not comfortable with that. Right. And, I, and I applaud them for that. But what I would say to, to the parent, and what I would say to any parent, you know, the rules are there for a reason, but it's more about the relationship. I'm going to go back to my favorite phrase that I use all the time. Rules without relationships leads to rebellion. So we can yell the rules at our kids louder, but if we don't explain to them why it matters, what the relationship looks like, they will rebel. So even if you gamble with your son at the age of 17, 16, underage, Right. There's still a chance that if he doesn't develop a healthy relationship with it or if he doesn't see all of the facets of it, he'll still potentially end up with some problematic use because he was exposed early. I'm a big believer of communication, of talking about it. Why do you have to gamble? Just talk about it. Let yeah. the father do it. He's of age. Or the mom. She's of age. Yeah, that's a, it's, kind of, it was you know, a weird conversation because, you know, listen, I don't live in their house, obviously, so I exactly, can't tell you that exactly. for a fact that... Like if you told me for a fact, a hundred percent, the kid's paying the debt that he has on your credit card out of his earnings, you know, with a part-time job, I feel better about that because at least the kid is going to start recognizing, Hey, I had to work nine hours, uh, to have that money that I just, you know, threw into the garbage. So there's a, yeah. there's a, a value proposition to that, which I do support as a matter of fact. But you know, my, my fear was, you're probably not making him pay off the debt because that's how parents are, number one, right? Right. And then number two, I asked him what he bets on. And I knew the answer before he even opened his mouth. And, of course, it's parlays. Yeah. And I said, isn't the idea to win? Because he's never going to win long term exactly. if he's only betting three, four, five, six, seven leg parlays. And I don't care what the incentive is to do it. It's fool's gold. You're not going to win doing that. Uh, and he goes, yeah, obviously he bets parlays. And I said, well, look, here's my advice. I can't tell you to tell your kid to stop gambling because I'm not going to be silly about it. It's your son, not mine, obviously. But if he's going to do it, I do think you can at least walk him through the responsible way to do it. You know, yep. pick one game on Saturday, one game on Sunday. You know, do your research on the game. You're still going to lose a lot. But going into something that seems like pie in the sky – you know, I'm not going to enter, you know, the National Publishing Clearinghouse sweepstakes today because I know I'm not going to win the $10 million prize. <laughs> Ain't nobody knocking on my door, right? Yeah. And I, I view it the same way that if you're going to be, a, uh, as a parent, if your idea, and I'm not knocking it because it's a tough spot to be in as a parent, you want your kid to be open and honest, you'd rather they do it under the confines of your roof and be totally aware of what they're doing. And I do respect that. I got four kids, and I hope my kids are open and honest with me if they go down any of those roads. But I do think that the responsibility is to educate them in what's flat-out stupidity and what's a smarter way to do it. Yeah, and that's and you know my concern, Craig, too. Taking that a step further is what if his son actually wins one of those parlays? What is that doing? You know, that's now right. showing him that the unlikely happens, and he because one of the worst things that can happen to somebody who's just learning about gambling is that they actually win, and when they win, they have this these cognitive um, disruptions and distortions. They think that it's easier to win than what statistically 
or probably really will happen on a continual basis. So you're starting to teach maybe some really bad habits and practice, not to mention you always talk about those same game parlays, that kind of stuff. How do we teach safer gambling? Right? We teach them about don't chase your losses, only budget a small amount of money that you use for entertainment. And if you lose it, don't go trying to win it back. You know, don't right. get possessive over that. I, you know, it is a tough one, Craig. You know, I have three kids, too. You know, and I would just like to think at the end of the day that they're going to talk about these things. And that's why the relationship matters more than just the rule. It's just more about explaining and having the conversation. But, man, that's, it's tricky for all parents because they're all facing this. And I, and I understand where it's coming from. Yep. But it yep. really makes – because they don't want to be left out. You know, the kids see stuff on social media. Their friends are all doing it. I don't want to be left out. And, and look, at the end of the day, there's no blueprint or, or handbook written – and that's why I wanted to, I compared it to drinking because I know for a fact yeah. that, you know, we have friends who are like, Hey, as long as they're all at my house, I can control it. I'm okay with it because I'm not going to be, I know they're going to drink. And I would just rather they drink at my house, sleep at my house. You know, I have friends that take all the kids' keys when they walk in the door just in case, you know, a kid has too much to drink. Even if they're yeah. hiding it, their parents know they're drinking. So I could go on and on about that. Here's what experience, I guess, and wisdom has kind of taught me over time. And you're older than me, so maybe you have more wisdom than I do. I'm not sure. But we always know that there's not one thing that's going to lead a person to develop a problem, right? So let's just say this kid someday uh, develops a problem with gambling. It's not because the father or the parent did this and made that decision at this point. It's so complex, and there's so many other factors that will go on in this young person's life. This is just one of many things that will happen. So it's a really complex, to your point, conversation to have and to understand. You know, but as long as we can defer onset or use or initiation of an activity, it statistically reduces the likelihood of having a problematic relationship. That's what science and statistics tells us. So yeah. delay as long as possible has been a great prevention tool for years. And I would suggest, and you know, not that I'm the dad of the year or anything like that, but uh, having the conversation, being active in your kids' lives, asking yep. questions, and making sure that you've built a relationship where your kids trust you and come to you to have those types of conversations is always the right answer. Well, look, yeah. we ran out of time. Uh, we're a couple of weeks out from Thanksgiving, so the annual big uh, Thanksgiving show is coming up as well. And I always appreciate Dan uh, coming on. It's Dan Trelaro, Epic Risk Management. Next week, we'll be back at it with another gambler in recovery for sure. Yep. And as always, appreciate everybody's time. Joe Beningo's coming up next. Dan, appreciate you. Have a great weekend, pal. You too. Thanks, brother. We'll see you next week right here on Hello, My Name is Craig.